It Shouldn't Be in the Church, The Saga Continues, by Thomas E. Walker. It, False Teachings. Jesus was called a teacher 60 times in the Bible. Thus, the parables were teaching moments in the form of parables. Parables are a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. As told by Jesus in the Gospels, hope was always exhibited in Jesus' teachings. We can learn from just a few of them that Jesus' parables are ageless and still relevant today. Point one, the parable of the great banquet, which is found in Luke 14, chapter 1st through 21st verse, 24th verse. Second, is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that was found in Luke 16th chapter 19 through the 31st verse. There's the parable of the lost son found in Luke 15th chapter 11 through the 31st. There's the parable of the lost sheep, Luke 15, third verse through the seventh verse. And lastly, the rich young ruler and Jesus, which is found in Matthew, the 19th chapter, 16th through the 28th verse. Sharing the gospel in the church must be our major priority because people are getting their information from unreliable sources and false teachers who are appointed and predestined to fool the very elect. This is in comparison to what Jesus was teaching in Matthew, the 24th chapter, the 4th and the 5th verse, as he said that we must take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Let us understand that there have been many people since the ascension of Jesus, who came to proclaim that they are the Christ or the Messiah, only to die and not be resurrected, nor perform any of the miracles that Jesus, the Christ, was able to complete. Also, many of the established doctrines and organizations after the original apostles used end-time prophecy or indulgence and prosperity teachings to gain the hearts of the people seeking salvation. Ultimately, it was determined that they did not have the answer and their way was not God's way. There were only believers in Christ and in the hope of salvation who have been martyred for their belief in the true Savior. However, other believers who are enticed by the words of these false teachers were victims of Antichrist teachings, only to be fleeced and discouraged from knowing the true Jesus. People who really wanted to know Jesus the Christ as their Savior unfortunately lost hope and fell away from their path and purpose in Christ. We can see this in the church body today as we are imposed with the shepherding movement or covering theology in the church congregation. This is truly unbiblical and pagan because of its establishment 
to being after the Roman Empire. The shepherding movement was established less than 50 years ago and has become the best weapon against salvation and holiness since the institutionalization of the church in the third century. An online blog post named Covering and Authority, written by Leighton Tabay and posted on December 7, 2008, nicely and articulately describes covering theology as follows. It says, Covering theology is wrong on several levels. First and foremost, it distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ. It redefines sin, grace, and faith through an authoritarian lens. It takes the precious things the Bible tells us are available to us solely through faith, like God's protection and provision, and makes them conditional upon submission to a church leader. This is no different than the false teachers of Paul's day who tried to teach that circumcision was necessary to have a complete relationship with God. Paul's response in Galatians the third chapter, the third verse says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Covering theology teaches that the kingdom of God operates like a Roman Empire, which is a clearly defined hierarchy order. The one verse that is used to support this notion is Romans 13, chapter 1 through the 7. But the original context of the passage has to be ignored to make this fit. In this passage, Paul was not talking about the church. He was talking about the Roman Christians should relate to Roman Empire. Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew the 20th chapter, 25th through the 26th verse, that the church should not operate like the Roman Empire. You know, covering theology is coercive and inevitably leads to spiritual abuse. It compels people to submit through their through the threat of spiritual disaster. It is manipulative because the threat is not real. There is no scripture that indicates people put themselves at peril if they do not completely submit to authority. Most of the church Christians does not believe in covering theology. That movement was completely discredited, and some of the leaders have publicly repented for their involvement. End quote. False teachings are destroying the hope of a better existence in Jesus Christ. The covering theology incorporates the actions and doctrine that a Christian needs spiritual covering other than the spiritual covering of God through the teaching and guidings of the Holy Spirit. Many believers are held in submission and spiritual bondage under the covering theology until it destroys the essence of liberty and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Leaders who practice this as a part of their ministries are not teaching under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. On the contrary, they have incorporated what is known to be the shepherding movement, which has been denounced by the organizers of the movement to be unbiblical and hurtful to all who follow and accept the movement as doctrine for their church. The shepherding movement is the single most catastrophic teaching of the charismatic movement in the 20th century. It permeated despair, submission to the church leadership as they use hierarchical or pyramid schematics of covering and overseer mentality which totally usurped the spiritual order of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ is the main reason for the Christian faith and the gifts of the Spirit are just tools to help Christians proclaim Christ and the true Christian theology. The shepherding movement believed that Everyone was subjected to paying tithes to the church as an important sacrament to Jesus. Also, they believe that all the congregants must obey and seek their leader's approval in all matters. If they continued with anything without their leader's approval, no one would be blessed. The shepherding movement tailored with the covering theology, believed that a congregant was not saved unless they were baptized in Jesus' name and then baptized in the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. This was taught to many of the believers as spiritual baptism. This doctrinal teaching caused many believing Christians to leave the faith due to them not receiving the gifts of tongue as evidence of their belief in Christ. Many Christians under this teaching were also dangerously subjugated in believing in sanctification and holiness can only come from laying on hands of the person who is sinless. As a result of some not living up to the doctrinal expectation, they were left to feel undesired by God. The ultimate result of this movement and the covering theology opened the door for many leaders to effectively cause millions to lose hope and fall away from God. During the charismatic movement and the apostolic faith movements, Many were programmed to believe that there was such an evidence of being saved, sanctified, and baptized in the Holy Ghost. This evidence was often validated by the leaders of these movements with what was called evidence of speaking in the gifts of tongues. This was invaluable to them to know for sure that a person was truly committed or submitted to the faith. This was their pinnacle for acceptance into their doctrine and considered as one of the true nature and manifestation of being sealed in the Holy Ghost. Additionally, speaking in tongues for these two movements are essential to the growth and development of their doctrine. 
but it was not essential to the overall Christian faith. Many scholars believe that there is no such evidence of the Holy Spirit relating speaking in tongues as a mandatory qualification to verify a person's salvation. Speaking in tongues is the Greek terms. In Greek terms means glossolalia is found in 1 Corinthians 12 chapter 4 through the 11th verse and Romans the 12th chapter. This was one of the nine charisma or the grace gifts of the Spirit. Elwell points out that speaking in tongues has two functions. First, it is an initiation or authentication gift meant as a divine affirmation of a new group entering the church. Second, it is a spiritual gift bestowed upon sovereignly chosen individuals within the church. Elwell continues to relate to this type of gift things as having an ecstatic experience. To have an ecstatic experience means joyful, elated, euphoric, delirious, joyful, joyous, blissful. Yet, False teachers and false doctrine imposes that there must be an evidence of an ecstatic experience in the form of speaking in an unknown language as authentication of being saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. Although there are numerous verses in the Bible, such as Joel 2nd chapter 28th through 31st verse that talks about God's spirit being poured out on all flesh. There was no mention of an ecstatic evidence of speaking in tongues. Also, Numbers chapter 11. There were 70 elders whom the spirit rested on them and they began to prophesy. But there was no mention that speaking in tongues as a requirement of the manifested gift to bear evidence that they were ready to be used by God. Other scriptures that talk about God's spirit dwelling in a person is found in 1 Samuel's 19th chapter 18 through the 24th verse and 1 Kings 18th chapter 28th through the 29th verse in which each of them talks about the spirit indwelling with the gift of prophecy and not speaking in an unknown language. So, therefore, there is extra biblical evidence that does support such an event that talks about unknown tongues being identified as a language. And it identifies that in the ancient non-biblical world, ecstatic utterances, trances, and frenzied behavior were commonly associated with pagan prophets. The 11th century BC documents record occurrences of ecstatic speech and the like in Egypt. In the Hellenistic world, the prophetess of Delphi and the sibling priestess spoke an unknown or intelligible speech. Also, the Dionysian rites contain a trance-like state as well as glossolalia. Many magicians and sorcerers of the first century world 
exhibited similar phenomena as in the case of the spirit of divination. Other false teachers would have us believe that the invariable requirements for being saved are keeping the Mosaic laws, being circumcised, being of Hebrew or African ancestry, adhering to the Sabbath day on Saturday, not celebrating holidays, praying to Mary and other gods, and paying tithes to the church, and that these things will help us obtain eternal life. But we must affirm to every believer that our faith was never intended to be about displaying how much we are blessed, but how we can be a blessing to someone else. People who strongly desire to give their lives to Jesus lost hope due to the false teachings of not having the evidence of speaking in tongues and were made to feel unworthy to be loved by God because that particular evidence was not there. And as a result, they turned to other religions such as Buddhism, Islam, New Age, mysticism, and witchcraft, which also as a means to understand the supernatural and a way to find supernatural enlightenment and hope. Hebrews, the 11th chapter in the first verse, tells us that after our hope has been affirmed, we seek holiness through the infilling of the Holy Spirit to become born again. Hebrews tells us that the next chapter in this process is now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Consequently, how can a believer in Jesus nurture and grow in their faith when it is measured by a man-made doctrine. Faith as a Christian is absolutely what Hebrews 11 chapter the first verse tells us, that faith gives us hope to become more like Christ when we learn who he is, study his teachings, and understand that he sacrificed his life for our sins so that we can know him and God through the Holy Spirit's teaching. What better teacher to teach us than the Holy Spirit? No matter how much man taps into the knowledge of good and evil, it still cannot unlock the true mysteries of God. Our daily lives should exude the nature of Christ and the blessings of obedience that keeps us humble and grateful that we are saved and on our individual journey with Christ. When we study the process of salvation and justification by faith through grace, we can see Jesus' point of view of salvation and love. Each scripture provides a plain and simple understanding of Jesus' path to salvation through the statements the Bible represents them. We must also be aware of the hope that is given to us as in these simple but powerful statements. John 3.16 and through 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Mark, the 16th chapter, 16th through the 18th verse says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believe and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. This is part of the Great Commission of Christ, that chapter. John, the 14th chapter, 6 through the 10th verse says, Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen me. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the father, and it sufficed us. Jesus said unto him, I have been so long a time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the father. And no, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doth the work. John, the third chapter, third through the eighth verse, says, And Jesus replied, Verily, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Verily, I truly say unto you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless They are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to the flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, we must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone Born of spirit. Matthew 22nd chapter 35th through the 40th verse says, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all of thy soul and with all of thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets.
That is part of the great commandment. So, therefore, we have read about the great commission and the great commandment of Christ. Jesus succinctly outlined that our hearts must gravitate toward repentance and redemption before the process of sanctification and holiness can start. Hope with an understanding that salvation is an ongoing process helps every believer understand that they are all sinners saved by grace and it is truly a gift that no man can boast within himself that they have the ability to live a sinless life because all have sinned and fallen short of God's grace. Just as the Pharisees and Sadducees continuously announced with their outer garments and religious character that they were part or set apart or called out from among the other people of God's children. They practiced religious rites, rituals, and ordinances that showed a communal acceptance of religion, yet their hearts were, as Jesus said, far from him. And that's found in Matthew, the 15th chapter, the first through the eighth verse. Although Jesus was talking to the Jewish people as he taught parables relating to the kingdom of God, holiness, teachings of repentance and faith, the context of that verse is very germane to today's Christian worldview because There are so many misrepresentations of God's plan and Christ's revelation through false teachings that it permeates from the leaders as one who has the pride of life ruling their decisions for God's people in the church. Other religions who see the outward manifestation of what Christianity has evolved into have caused other religions blatantly to renounce Christ as Savior and God as Creator. Consequently, many of the other faiths and religions are empowered to judge all Christians as being judgmental, prideful, egotistical, self-righteous, and mean-spirited toward anything or anyone who doesn't fit their ideology. Believers in other religions and worldviews and even non-believers are quick to pose their own doctrinal related scriptures back at us to reflect whether they truly understand the negative energy and the misrepresentation of Jesus' message of salvation and redemption for everyone who would come unto him. Jesus wanted the world to know that he was the Prince of Peace and the Good Shepherd that searches for all lost sheep. Jesus instituted a plan of salvation to all mankind when he met Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus was able to change the heart of the disciples' greatest adversary to renew the heart and mind of Paul, then Saul, by infilling and indwelling him with the Holy Spirit. The invaluable point to Paul's conversion is not the fact that he met Jesus at a certain place. 
It is the fact that Paul wasn't prepared to be converted, and therefore he did not have an alternate plan or hidden agenda when he encountered Jesus and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. As believers in Christ, we must present our bodies as living sacrifices, meaning just as in the in those days when people of the culture of that time was offering sacrifices, there was a preparation process that was completed in order for the sacrifice to be acceptable. A sacrifice is the particular way of presenting certain offerings. Paul was an exception to the offering and sacrifice process because although Paul persecuted the believers of Jesus, he still fully understood and knew the commandments of God. He studied them and lived by them with zeal. Paul was a great teacher and apostle and the old English that version or definition of apostle is apostol via ecclesiastical language from Greek apostolos meaning messenger from apostolane sent forth in Christ. What separates Paul in the Bible is his continued reference concerning who he was in Christ which was the fact that he always put Christ and the submission to the authority of Christ in the forefront. His missionary journeys were that of service and submission to the work of the Holy Spirit unto salvation and equipping the believers for service and sacrifice. You see, Paul had to prove to the rest of the believers that he was redeemed and now set apart to the mysteries of God. He accepted the calling as messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles, therefore distinguishing him as a born-again believer and Christ's appointed apostle. The significance of this is, regardless of Paul's past atrocities against the other believers, evidence of his encounter with Christ was very noticeable. It was noticeable in his walk, it was noticeable in his dress, in his mannerism, and ability to be used by the Holy Spirit to heal, deliver, and set captives free from divination, witchcraft, and immorality. He was the primary messenger to usher change and renewal in the minds of the Gentiles and Roman audience. Paul encountered so many trials and physical demotions which ultimately landed him in jails, prisons, and dungeons and consequently got him executed. But was this because of Paul's ministry or his title as apostle? No, it was because he was a faithful messenger of Christ until death. Paul makes a significant statement to the saints about his service to the Lord as he was still willing to encourage the believers while facing his own death. Paul said, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, would award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. This scripture is found in 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, 6 through the eighth verse. You know, the significance is that he did not usurp Jesus while he evangelized to the different churches that were newly established. If Paul was a false teacher or only interested in the new title and status he obtained, he could have easily turned the believers of Christ toward himself. However, Paul wanted to keep the message of freedom from the law and how every believer has a measure of faith with that faith. And with that faith, they have the power to withstand anything that opposes the knowledge of God. Paul believed that it was important to help Christians understand the intricacies of false teaching and false teachers. Paul also understood that without a doubt that he was a servant for the Lord Jesus Christ, working in Christ and within the teachings of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Also, Paul was in prison for most of his leadership of the churches he established during his apostolic journey to the cities across nations spanning from modern Israel to Italy. The list of the cities include Rome, Tyre, Sidon, Myra, Patara, Cydnus, Miletus, Ephesus, Antioch, Iconium, Tarsus, Derby, Troas, Ashus, Adramitinium, Troas, Mytilene, Apollyon, Philippi, Amphibulus, Berea, Thessalonica, Corinthian, Sinche, Ptolemies, Caesarea, and Jerusalem. And many of the verbal proclamations and written letters started with him giving reverence and acknowledgement that he was a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, or he was in the Lord. This is important because Paul never overstepped the authority of Christ during his missionary journeys. Four times in the Bible, Paul stated that he was a willing servant of Christ. If you go with me, find Romans, the first chapter, the first verse. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Another verse, Colossians, the fourth chapter, the 12th through 12th verse. Ephraterus, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salute you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers that ye may be perfect and complete in all the will of God. Another verse is found in Philippians, first chapter, first verse. Paul and Timotheus, a servant 
of Jesus Christ to all the saints of Christ Jesus, which are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. The final verse is found in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, sixth verse. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. It was through this understanding that Paul never intended for his teachings or understanding of salvation to be greater than whom he served. Paul stated in Galatians, the second chapter, the 20th verse, that says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul understood that his personal encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus was specific and pointed toward his salvation from the Mosaic law. Following the false teachings of the synagogue and doing evil in the name of God to elevate man's agenda on earth. Paul continued to see how the Holy Spirit was needed to comfort himself in all thoughts and imaginations that include pride and envy. However, Paul stated that there was something that he often struggled within himself, which he alluded as a circumstance that God allowed to buffet him, which means to keep him grounded, to understand that he would always need salvation and redemption in Christ to withstand temptations of falling into previous sins that connected him to his old personality and character, Saul. This is what makes the scripture more personal when we know that we are sinful by nature and the sinful characteristics of who we once were is still inherently accessible when we allow the thoughts and feelings before we were introduced to the Savior present itself again. We know that Paul really believed and understood with so much passion that every believer in Christ could no longer live and function the same as before they encountered Jesus Christ. Regardless of the encounter, it was imperative that he let them know that change and rebirth are not only needed, but it is requested of each servant. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God, which is your rational act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed and progressively changed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
and that's found in Romans, the 12th chapter, first through the third verse. You should also read the Amplified Version as well. These words were spoken in Rome among the Hellenistic Jews and Romans. Reiterate the fact that sanctification and total renouncement of their old pagan beliefs and aristocracy was no longer needed because the God that they heard of no longer required an earthly sacrifice of any kind. Yet, the living sacrifice was submitted and accepted for all mankind because of their social status. Jesus Christ was that sacrifice. And if they accepted this freely given sacrifice, then simultaneously the transformation of compassion, love, and morality and morally ethical and holy living will be introduced to them through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Paul wanted them to know that there was hope in knowing that moral and ethical freedom could be attained if a person completely dedicate their lives and mind to the lifestyle that did not require anyone to submit themselves to a pagan rulership of blood offerings, immorality, demon worship, and self-mutilation at the entertainment of others. It was important that the Romans and Jews understood that if they were willing to give up their old customs and rituals for a better life that was mentally and spiritually free, then they would be able to live in a much higher supernatural existence regardless of their current natural circumstance. Paul continues to remind us throughout his letters that we need to put aside our past and share the old thinking and way that we profess information or process information in our hearts in order to receive the message of hope that was not preached or taught before Jesus started his ministry. This was ultimately what the Roman aristocrats feared the most. It wasn't the population explosion and the probability that the Romans would become the minority in, in number within its empire. It was the hope of freedom and strength through the teachings of Jesus and the belief that the Jews had a God that truly cared for them enough to rescue them from their oppressors. The Romans heard of the many times their God revealed himself and defeated their enemies. During the, that time and times prior to the years of silence, God was with the Israelites in the same manner he allowed his son, Jesus Christ, to walk among them many times as well. Today, as we think of the false teachings and how it continues to keep us trying to earn our freedom through works and submission to the power of man, we can see the evidence in the churches, the temples, and parishes that false teachers are not preaching about justification by faith. Hope is our greatest weapon against people places or things that try to hold us in legalistic bondage. 
This is why we need the teaching of Paul. His writings were concisely written to the early planet churches during their missionary travels to help them understand that they were no longer slaves or in bondage to the doctrinal teachings of man. One of Paul's writings was found in Romans the 6th chapter, the 16th verse, as he wanted them to understand that they were renewed and resurrected from the sinful bondages of having a king to rule over them or a synagogue with only a priest to instruct them. And if you think about it, throughout history, man has allowed other men to rule over them. Therefore, God allowed the Israelites to be exiled, put in bondage and captivity because of their desire to be like the people around them. The Israelites in 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, the 6th through the 22nd verse, illustrates the voluntary actions of the Israelites to give up their willingness to trust and obey God and belligerently seek to be led by a man or institution other than God. They ultimately lost the anointing of God to protect them and lead them in a way of obedience. Instead, they told the prophet Samuel to ask God to give us a king to rule over us. Just as the church today, we are falling back into the old system that caused the Spirit of God to leave our dwelling places of worship and hearing His voice because we are being subjugated back into oppression by embracing the teachings of man that require us to submit to apostolic covering or to acknowledge that we must have a king slash bishop to rule over us. This is in direct correlation to the Old Testament request of the Israelites to God. Spiritual covering and apostolic coverings are contradictory to what the believers in Christ during the church of Antioch understood it to be. During this time, Paul was able to establish new bands of synagogue-type fellowships, which preached the very essence of salvation and sanctification, which consequently did not include denominational or doctrinal elements because there weren't any doctrines or denominational standards to be applied or legalized by the true believers in Christ. Only the Pharisees and Judaizers promoted and strongly instigated salvation through control, strict adherence to the law, and man-influenced ordinances. So what makes Paul's teaching invaluable for the hearts of the people in each of the countries that he evangelized were the simplicity of the message of hope and peace. Paul told Jews and non-Jewish people that there is a God greater and more loving than any other God being talked about or worshipped. They also exhibited belief and committed faith in the unknown God, that he will bring peace and joy. 
Paul gave this message of salvation in many different variations, and the people received it wholeheartedly and without question. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into his grace, and which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Today, false teachers are falsely prophesying and declaring and decreeing that there is hope in what they are offering to God. While teaching principles of blessings that they propose to their believers to submit in obedience to their church, their church building, and the leaders. They are evaluated on how much they are committed to seeing their church grow in prosperity based on how much or how many church services or sacraments the individual person upholds. These are all predicated on pride. You see, when we take pride in our congregational numbers or denominational creeds or ordinances of tithes and offerings, this invites pride to indwell our churches and it cancels the manifestation of hope of the glory of God. Paul was truly onto something when he clearly pointed out that salvation is a gift from God. God gifted his son as payment for all of our sins, past, present, and future on Calvary. Yet, false teachers are enslaved to the word of faith, the prosperity gospel movement, because of the ability to live off the donations and tithes of the believers who are seeking Christ through desperation and hope. They are systematically destroying the hope and faith that Paul talked about only to hold them in bondage, believing that paying tithes and offering will get them into heaven. This false teaching has substantially destroyed the body of Christ and ravaged the foundation of Christianity unto an irreconcilable proportions. The Bible did warn us of this impending catastrophe and how it would dare to destroy the integrity of the called out believers. Matthew seven fifteen sixteen verse plainly tells us of these times when it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? The false teachers are considered ravenous wolves who are preying on the hearts and vulnerabilities of Jesus' sheep. To put the term sheep into perspective, Jesus called himself the good shepherd and his believers his sheep. If you turn to John 10, chapter 11, verse records what Jesus identified himself when he proclaimed, I am 
the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Also, we must know that a shepherd has sheep, and all that believe that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd are considered his sheep. And that's found in John 10th chapter 27 to the, to the 30th verse also tells us, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. The Bible does allude to the alternate sheep and how he still loves them regardless of the sinful paganistic acts and false teachings or fleecing of the congregation to state that I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and become one of my flock and me their shepherd. Many scholars would agree that this scripture references meant the Gentiles or non-believers, but what if it meant many of the lost sheep that are enticed by strained doctrine and false teachings? The Old Testament talks about repentance. The New Testament talks about repentance as well. However, the gospel message has been convoluted and watered down by the prosperity and word of faith gospel to believe that our carnality and our works are an intricate part that enables us to be saved. Which is totally false teaching because there is nothing that we can do but confess, repent, and commit to the necessity of needing a Savior in our lives. All this is faith actionable gestures that do not require us to give an offering, a pledge, or work in a ministry to prove that we are saved. If we consider the words of Solomon, as he says, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And that's found in Ecclesiastics, first chapter, ninth verse. We can see that the teachings of indulgence, absolution, and sacraments of the Catholic Church are very similar to the slavery of tithing and submission to the authority of leadership. False teaching has been manifesting itself in the Christian church ever since it began through various forms of doctrinal precepts. Many of them came from Judaizers. One, the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, commonly identified as the four marks of the church, the Roman Catholic Church. Each of these sects of believers understood that Jesus was the Savior and Son of God that died for our sins on the cross. Many of them believed in the same ideologies. However, there are strong dissimilarities. Here are the major differences. 
the full marks of the church believes that the church has the ability to save and sustain the workings of the Holy Spirit through accepting the Nicene Creed belief of faith that the church is one, the church is holy, the church is Catholic, and the church is apostolic. Another one is the Orthodox Church, which is the one church founded by Jesus Christ and his apostles, begun at the day of Pentecost with the descent of the Holy Spirit in the year A.D. 33. It is also known, especially in the contemporary West, as the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Greek Orthodox Church. It may also be called the Orthodox Catholic Church, the Orthodox Christian Church, the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, the Body of Christ, the Bride of Christ, or simply the Church. Another is the Roman Catholic Church, the Church at Rome, which would later develop into what we know as Roman Catholicism, It started in the apostolic times of A.D. 30 through 95. Although we do not have records of the first Christian missionaries to Rome, it is obvious that a church existed there as the New Testament scriptures were being written. St. Paul himself wrote to this epistle to the church of Rome And the book of Acts records some of the dealings there. St. Clement of Rome in A.D. 35-99, through St. Ignatius of Antioch in 35-108, and St. Irenaeus of Lyons in A.D. 130-202, all speak as if St. Simon Peter ministered in Rome, serving as his first bishop. The term bishop is an English contraction of the biblical Greek word episkopos, often translated as overseer in the modern Protestant translation of the New Testament. The Roman Catholic Church holds to the idea of the treasury of merit. Roughly speaking, this is a sort of bank of grace in which the merits of Jesus Christ and his holy saints are stored and can be accessed for the benefit of other Christians. It is inexhaustible due to Christ's own infinite merit. Roman Catholics pray to Christ or any variety of saints beseeching them for such benefits. It is important to remember that Roman Catholics do not understand themselves to be worshiping the saints. They seek to honor them while recognizing God alone as worthy of divine worship. There's another, the Great Schism of 1054. The Great Schism was the formal break of communion between Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Various disputes of theological nature contributed in this 1054 schism, and Latin churches were closed in Constantinople 
as a response to the closure of Greek churches in southern Italy. The Great Schism remained one of the most significant events in the history of Christianity and went on to have a huge impact on subsequent developments in Europe. The history of disputes between the Eastern Orthodox Church and Roman Catholic Church had begun much earlier than 1054. Various theological disputes of importance included the source of the Holy Ghost, use of leaven or unleavened bread for the Eucharist, and the dispute over the jurisdiction of the Pope. The closing down of churches on both sides began in 1053, and the normal schism occurred in the following year. The Great Schism of 1054 was the splitting point between Western Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. The schism itself was the culmination of centuries of theological disputes between these two branches of Christianity. The disputes had existed since the initial centuries of Christianity, but it was in the 1054 schism that leaders of the two churches excommunicated each other. Lastly, in 1517, it wasn't until Martin Luther, a relatively unknown monk and scholar, penned a document attacking the Catholic Church's corrupt practices of selling indulgences as a way to absolve sin. The 95 Thesis that was nailed to the door of the Roman Catholic Church in Wittenberg permanently separated previous Catholics' beliefs and ultimately formed a group of believers called Protestants. This time, the religious history was called the Protestant Reformation. His 95 Thesis consisted of two central beliefs. One, that the Bible is the central religious authority and that humans may reach salvation only by their faith and not by their deeds. The second is, as a result, it sparked what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. To protest means that you disapprove of something and and therefore you are making a statement against it publicly. When we protest something, that means we are willing to stand on a view and suffer the consequences of our beliefs. One of Luther's Protestant views resembled today's understanding of salvation in some churches that service rituals are most important and pleasing to God. The Catholic Church believed that through the sacraments, sins could be absolved if the parishioner participated in eating a wafer, which represented the body of Christ, and drinking the wine known as the blood of Christ. 
Additionally, their rituals seemed more magical and mechanical because there was no way that the crucifixion and sacrificing of Jesus' blood on the cross can continuously be reenacted with a man proclaiming to have the power to make God and sacrifice Christ. Paul was correct in telling believers that salvation is a gift by grace through faith. We cannot be influenced into thinking that a man, a position, or a statue can affect our salvation. Christ paid the price for all sins. Therefore, Luther was correct in protesting the fact that salvation is not a magical and controlled by forces and powers other than the grace of God. False teachers want us to believe that we must prove our worth and participate in upholding traditions, rituals, and laws so that people who are churchgoers can see your faithfulness or the leadership of the church can witness you speaking in tongues or catching the Holy Ghost. When we accept the grace of God, we are not seeking a magical exchange through seeing a man-made or unbiblical standard of evidence being saved to ensure others of our salvation. On the contrary, we want the message of salvation to be concise and without hard-to-obtain stipulations. When they visualize and reverence the physical death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only means of believing that they are justified by grace through faith, there is complete joy and peace knowing that all we had to do is believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and repent from all sins and unrighteousness, and then we are saved. It is so important to be saved right now in this moment. No matter what sins is or situations that you may find yourself living with, Jesus loves you so much that he took all of the sins and acts of sin and forgave them. No matter what others may think about you, God already knows and forgives you. And all that you have to do is accept his son, Jesus, as your atonement for sin and believe that his death matters to you. And you understand and acknowledge that he willingly died to pay the price for your individual sins. He sees you and he loves you and wants a relationship with you. A person can read and understand the following verse to be saved by grace through faith is found in Romans 10, 9 through the 13th verse, as it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says... Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. 
for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the Bible and throughout Christianity, there have been strong women of faith who greatly affected the acceptance of Christianity and salvation through their service as missionaries since Christianity was institutionalized. Jesus was very succinct when he gave the invitation, Come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus came to save and commission everyone who believed and was baptized in the understanding that he is Savior. Your gender or your background did not matter. There was an offering of rest for your souls. Therefore, if you are suffering from abuse, trauma, unforgiveness, abandonment, addictions, mental illness, spiritual bondage, and church hurt, Jesus wants to give you rest and comfort from your the physical and emotional and spiritual captivity. We can no longer stand in agreement with false teachings that tell us someone should be silent in the church or they cannot proclaim Christ without someone's permission. Proclaiming Christ requires telling our truth of faith and salvation to someone who needs to hear and see what rest looks like and feels like in Jesus. However, most of the false teachers have built their doctrines based on the scripture Acts 2 verses 1 through 4, whereas it tells us, and when the day of Pentecost was fit to come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. This scripture must be read in the context that it was presented and not for the emotion or inflection of the event, meaning during the time of Pentecost, there was a celebration convening there where multiple nations gathered in the city. The apostles were in that location observing the Pentecost and waiting for the promise that Jesus told them would come. His promise was to receive power. This power was the Holy Spirit, the comforter and teacher to guide them on the rest of their spiritual journey as messengers of salvation in Jesus Christ. Since Jesus had ascended back to heaven, one of the important teaching gifts that the Holy Spirit gave to the apostles were the ability to speak in literal language of many of the nations that were in the city celebrating. This is not by chance or coincidence that each apostle was filled with the foreign speaking language at this particular time. It allowed them to tell other nationalities who did not witness about 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and allowed them to be able to go out of their place into the marketplace and began to evangelize to others in the language that they could understand. This is the significance of the speaking in tongues. Unfortunately, there have been insurmountable false teachings that state that the day of Pentecost was the time that the apostles was given a heavenly language that only God understood. This is untrue of this incident, and this is not evident in Scripture to indicate that these apostles were given a heavenly language at this event. Additionally, the description of cloven tongues mean divided or separated tongues that were not their birth language, but languages that the Holy Spirit was able to give them to speak to multiple persons of different languages in order to effectively tell about Jesus. John 14th chapter 26 verse tells us that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. Isn't foreign language one of them? John the 14th and 16th verse reads, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. However, we must be very cautious of teachings regarding a person having a heavenly language because this is man-interpreted, taken from the scripture found in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, the first verse, where it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass and tinkling Symbol. Again, there is no evidence of a heavenly language discussed in the Bible to mean speaking in tongues that are unrecognizable and fast like gibberish. In the Bible, we can always read where the angel of the Lord said, and the words are audible and understandable. The Bible provides references of angels speaking to man in a manner that is understandable and concise. The Old Testament scriptures records Daniel, the 8th chapter, 15th through the 16th verse, and Zechariah, the 1st chapter, 12th through the 21st verse, times when angels spoke to a person in a language they understood And in the New Testament, an angel of the Lord was recorded to have spoken to some as well. In Luke, the first chapter, 11th through the 13th verse, Matthew, the first chapter, 20th through the 21st verse, Luke, the first chapter, 26th through the 38th verse, Matthew, the 28th chapter, 5th through the 7th verse, and Revelation 14th chapter 6 through the 7th. Therefore, speaking in tongues that sounds like unrecognizable and undecipherable in some cases can be deduced to be kundalini in nature, such as chants or incantation, especially if there is no interpreter 
and it is not confirmed in scripture. Other false teachings and other false teaching that acclimates salvation as being baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is very powerful and very true. There must be a full surrender to understand that Jesus is Lord over all aspects of your lives. And then the infilling of the Holy Ghost is instigated to fill our hearts because the Bible clearly tells us that we are followers of a new covenant that tells us our hearts are the keys to becoming closely connected to God through Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 8 chapters 7 through 11, believers in Christ are given what is called a new covenant that applies to our personal acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior. It does not say that we need evidence of tongues or baptism in Jesus' name. It only tells us that a covenant has already been established and all we have to do is open our hearts and receive it. The scripture says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for the second, because finding fault with them. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. It is God's will to establish a personal relationship with everyone who accepts him as God. The laws that are now being established in the hearts of man are the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love one another. Also, God desires that we put him first above all things and worship and serve him in spirit and in truth. This is why the Holy Spirit is important because it keeps us in fellowship with God and it helps us to always remember the atonement of Jesus that paid the price for our sins. Jesus never intended for believers to feel confident and proud of the fact that they accepted a gift that is intended for everyone. Instead, Jesus Christ wanted us to receive and share the good news that the Messiah has come or the Savior has come to set the captives free from the bondage of sin. The message of salvation is the most important gospel to preach. 
we must be willing to go and share the message of salvation to everyone. I'm reminded of several scriptures that talk about salvation and how a person begin the process of accepting salvation from God through his son, Jesus Christ, so that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit can teach you and hold you close to the obedience of God's original plan for mankind. The first, believe that Jesus is the only Savior who is fully man and fully divine. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's found in Acts 16, chapter 30 through 31st verse. The second, understand that surrendering and repenting for rebellion to God's plan with everything within us because we are the individual person who must turn our hearts back to God in total serenity and trust that God has a plan and purpose for our lives. Acts 4 and 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under the heavens given among men whereby ye must be saved. The third, we must appreciate in knowledge that we are chosen by God because he foreknew us and provided us with the choice to trust the process of holiness, to be reconciled and be justified, to be completely reliant on the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in all truth. Scripture is Ephesians, the second chapter, the eighth and the ninth verse tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The fourth, total surrender to Jesus Christ's Lordship. To be delivered from past, present, and future sins by confessing means you are admitting that you need help and someone stronger and more capable of protecting you from yourself and from the sinful nature inherited from Adam and Eve when we were born. We must believe that everything in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confessions is made unto salvation. The gospel is the good news that gives us freedom, knowing that we no longer have to struggle with pleasing others in order to obtain grace and mercy. Accepting Christ as Savior put us in agreement for total discipleship to his plan and his message of faith, obedience, love, and peace. With the choice and power to make a total difference in our natural lives. Romans 1st chapter 16 verse tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and 
also for the Greeks. Finally, our Christian walk is an individual walk filled with unknown circumstances that remind us that we need a Savior to advocate and intercede for us. It is the advocate, Jesus Christ, who speaks to God on our behalf, petitioning for mercy and extended grace. When we choose to make a choice to not listen to the Holy Spirit, we are now walking in disobedience to God's purpose and authority. False teachers believe that they can lay hands on disobedience and speak obedience or restoration because of the title or statue they may hold. They need the Holy Spirit to move spiritual things and the divine relationship that is sanctioned by God to petition change. How can it be that people who outwardly display the calling of God while having kings or the Pharisees or Sadducees of the Old Testament need someone to speak into their lives and put them into spiritual bondage. Jesus told us that we will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit does not and cannot dwell or impart into someone who serves their position of authority on earth through church membership, offering, tithes, and indulgences of fame and fortune. We can identify false teachers who preach prosperity, obedience, and submission to their rulership and the ATM God or the other Jesus by calling it the infilling of the Kundalini or Jezebel spirits. The Bible tells us that we know a tree by its fruit. Then we must be aware of the leaders that we have loaned our leadership to. Also, when we think about the actions of many of the false teachers, when they proclaim that the Holy Spirit told them to say this or that, they vehemently pass it along to other people as a divine word from the Lord. An interpretation when they say, the Spirit told me to have one, two, three hundred, or five hundred people stand up and send in a hundred dollars in obedience to the angel of the house. This is in direct contrast to what God had already proven in the wilderness with the children of Israel, that he will supply all of the needs and take care of his chosen people. Therefore, this is a false teacher's attempt to usurp the authority and leadership of God. 